Hello, I'm Marcus Railton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. With me today is a Scot from Fife. He's 39 years old and has been writing the hugely successful Ryan Drake spy thriller novels for over a decade. In recent years, he's also become a YouTube celebrity with extremely clever film and TV reviews that have garnered him nearly one and a half million YouTube subscribers. My guest today is Will Jordan. Scott's Care. Hi, Will. Hello. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate you doing the Scott's Care podcast. No, no problem at all, man. Happy to join you. How, how does your day start? Is there a school run for you? Uh, yeah, although my wife usually does it, so <laughs> I, get to, I get to focus on doing work. Um, so yeah, my, my day starts pretty early because I've got like, we've got two greyhounds that usually decide to wake up at like 6am or something. Uh, yeah, so they kind of need taken out for walks and all that stuff. It's the usual stuff. Oh, literally, you've got greyhounds. I thought you were referring to your kids as greyhounds. No, no, I do. We do have actual greyhounds that, uh, you know, they used to be racing dogs and then we adopted them. Like, there's a lot of them that need rehomed after they, they finish their racing careers. So we got a couple. Yeah, I've, do you know what? I've read that, that the, the, the greyhounds don't get treated very well after their racing careers are over. No, they don't. Uh, I mean, it, it's better now, at least, because there's a bit of a system for um, putting them up to adoption places and then they can find like homes as, as family pets. But I think, you know, go back 20, 30 years when their racing careers were over, it was pretty much taken out behind the shed. And uh, yeah, that was it for them. Yeah, um, so yeah, they're, they're doing better now, you know, and they make great pets. Like we've got, like I say, a couple of them and they're just very, very chill animals. And what is your kids? Uh, they are nine and 12. Oh, almost the exact same as mine. My, my older boy, Noah, is 13, and my I've got a younger boy, Rafe, uh, who's nine, and I've got a daughter who's four, so there's a bit of gap. But, you know, when it's interesting, because I always refer to my boys as wild dogs, so when you said <laughs> the greyhounds, I thought, yes, that's right. They are, they are, they're wild, they're, you know, dealing with them. Yeah, so my day starts with this school run as well. Do your kids get what you do for a living because that's going to be interesting playground chatter what does your dad do he's a spy novelist and youtuber that's it yeah i think my eldest is at that age now because he's in high school where it's like oh it's a bit embarrassing that my dad does this stuff so i don't think he really mentions it uh and that's that's fair enough um, well that's you're not american and you don't scream hi guys and play hide and seek on youtube so that's it kind of puts you in a niche doesn't it that is true yeah and you know i always had this i always imagined like oh you know i get to be a youtuber you know my son's gonna be well impressed by that and he's just like nah you're you're too old dad <laughs> you're not cool well, that, if you pass twenty four, I think that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not streaming myself playing Fortnite or whatever else. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just not cool, unfortunately. This, uh, yeah, my son Rafe watch. I can't get my head around that. He watches a lot of other people playing games, which I just, you know, I don't want to be a dinosaur. I want to get, I want to get into his head, but I just don't get that. I don't get well. 
he's doing that. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, I think um, entertainment for kids now is boiling down to the lowest common denominator. That's why you get like you know TikTok videos that are like fifteen seconds long, um, and that's it. They just scroll through them, you know, like I one after the other. That. I genuinely worry about Noah. Who's a he's a smart kid, but sometimes his attention span is just like if it's if you don't catch him like that. It's gone, you know. He's it's it's happening to all of them, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I now that, what I, th- I think what they're producing is like fifteen second summaries of movies, so you don't even need to watch them. It's like they'll explain the entire story to you in like 15, 20 seconds, uh, and and that's it. It's like you know, asking someone to invest a couple of hours to watch a really entertaining film is like too much now. <laughs> it's it's strange that you know. I think when was I can't remember the last time Scotland played England at football. And I said to Noah, come on, we'll sit down and watch it because he, he was born, he was born in uh, just outside London. And so he kind of still sees himself as English, but wants to be Scottish. So we said, we'll sit down and watch this. And he must honestly will. He lasted about 15 minutes. And then I looked over and his phone was out and it was, yeah. but my kids don't think, I don't think they get what I do for a living. And they certainly don't think I'm cool. And when it, we had um, Duncan Powell on the podcast and he's in the new series of the Andor, the Star Wars thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. He plays Sergeant Melshi in it. And I, I said to the, the boys, I said, look, I'm, I'm interviewing Sergeant Melshi. Do you know who, who he is? And like, yeah, yeah, the guy from Rogue One, the guy from... And for about 15 seconds, they were impressed. And then it kind of tipped over into, but why is he talking to you? You know, yeah. it was like dripping in disdain, you know. <laughs> One minute you're up, the next you're down. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about your, your novels, because you're not... Are you even 40 yet? You're a bit of a powerhouse with the writing, aren't you? I am not quite 40 yet, so I'm still clinging on to my 30s for now. I'm enjoying every day of it. <laughs> How many Ryan Drake novels are there? 10? Uh, yes. No, sorry. There are nine Ryan Drake novels and then my new one, which is a standalone. But yeah, I got my first Drake novel published. Oh, but it was 10 years ago, actually, 10 years ago um, in June. Um, and so, yeah, I was only, what, 28? I think when I got my first publishing deal, so I was, I was pretty lucky. You know, a lot of people have a longer road to getting published, but I, mine was fairly easy. Did you get a lot of rejection before then, or were you lucky off the bat? Uh, I mean, I got a few rejections from agents and then found one fairly quick. Um, but the the book that we submitted, like my very first one, that ultimately didn't get published, which was a bit of a bit of a blow. But I went back to the drawing board, you know, and um, and figured out the things which worked about it, the things which didn't and wrote Redemption, which is my, you know, the, the first one that actually got a publishing deal. And that was great. That was the start of the journey for me, I suppose. It's, it's a lot of work though, isn't it? If, if, you've, if you've done 100,000 words or more and they say, we like it, we like your style, but not this book. Can you go and do us another 100,000 words? Yeah? yeah, that is a tough one. It's like, hey, guess what? You've just wasted a year. <laughs> Yes, it's difficult oh, not to think of it that way, isn't it? It's, yeah. I, yeah, like I say, I was lucky. You know, some authors they they produce like you know five six books before they get published, and yeah, that must be soul destroying. But yeah, I read that about Stephen King. I think he did that. He wrote a whole lot of books before anything got published at all. Yeah, but it's weird. Like back then, I think when you're so hungry to try and get that that step, you know, to take that next step, um, you've got that determination. Um, the thought of doing it now and, and writing a book that doesn't get published is like, oh my God, I just couldn't go through that at this point in my life. But well, back I then su- it's different. Yeah, I suppose, you know, it's when you've got kids and, you know, you get the mortgage and stuff. It's, you know, you have to, I don't know, what's the best word? Compromise, I suppose, yeah. A little bit, yeah. It was uh, it was a hectic time back then because I did have uh, one kid already and I was working full time. And so I was having to, 
you know, do the writing in the evening, you know, when other people were just vegging out watching TV, I was working. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the commitment I suppose you have to put in and you have to find the time somehow. Yeah. I'm always fascinated. I asked quite a lot of the guests how the, the work in Christopher Brookmeyer, he, he was saying he'll write every day. There's hardly a day he doesn't write. And then I was talking to Greg Kane of Hue and Cry, and he says if he gets up and he doesn't feel it, he won't go into this. He won't go into the studio because he knows he can't sit there for eight or nine hours just kind of flagellating himself, you know, and making himself feel crap about it. And how yeah. do you do? You have a daily work daily word count. Do you have to go in and do it? Yeah, you you have to. <laughs> the best way I can describe it is just like putting in the grind. And for me, I have to keep like a pretty. Um, fast pace of work when I'm doing a book because if I was one of those writers who just leaves it for you know a couple of days you know I'm not quite feeling it right now I'll just I'll come back to it in a while you know a couple of days turns into a week which can turn into a month and before you know it like the, the project's just dead yeah. uh, and so I just never allow that to happen when I'm writing a book it's it, really every day uh, might take one day off per week or whatever, but I don't really have a word count as such. It's not like, oh, I have to do 5,000 words per day or whatever it might be. Uh, it's just whatever feels like, you know, a satisfactory amount. And, you know, sometimes the writing comes easy. Sometimes it's more difficult. You might um, you might just manage to get a couple of pages done or you might get 10 pages. You know, you just never quite know how creative you're going to feel or how easy the scene's going to be. Um, but yeah, like I definitely try to make hay while the sun shines. And if I'm on a roll, yeah, I'll just keep going until like late at night, you know. And how, how much time do you spend in in research? Because I know you, you know, by your own admission, you don't have a military background. So I expect you, there's always something at the back of your mind saying, I don't want to get caught out or I don't want to look an arse here by getting something wrong. You, you do your best. I mean, I think that's, I guess, all that people can ask from you. Um, you're inevitably going to get things wrong because like you say if you're not from a military background there's just going to be little details that they know that you can't get from just reading um but i try my best with it and i'll do some preliminary research before i start my book so i've got a general outline of the the, the plot and i can check to make sure the things i'm describing are somewhat feasible uh, and then as i go through i'll just find out the things that i need to support a particular scene like if, if i'm writing about a particular place or a, a weapon or a piece of equipment or whatever like okay i'll go and research that as as i do it just so i can kind of describe how it functions or or whatever for a long time you were holding down a full-time job writing in the evening and and you had and and at this point you you had one child and then you obviously you are now a full-time writer, full-time YouTuber, and we'll come on to the YouTube stuff in a bit because that's fascinating and I love it. But even even at this point, when you were successful, was it still a bit of a leap of faith to say, this is what I'm going to do, this is how I, I'm going to put food on the table for the family and I'm not going to take the paycheck from the company anymore and be a full-time writer? It, it was, yeah. And um, to be honest with you, I didn't really um, leave like a paid employment until my YouTube career took off because the reality of being a writer is that you don't make a huge amount of money from it. You know, if you become the next JK Rowling or Stephen King, yeah, okay, you're going to be a millionaire. But like for every one of them, there's, there's thousands, if not tens of thousands of authors who just are barely getting by um, or don't even make enough money. They have to supplement it with, with employment. Um, and for me, that was kind of the, the situation I was in, at least in the early stage of my writing career, you know, you get that first um, advance 
you know, you, you get your first publishing deal and you think, that's it. I'm on the road to fame and success. And uh, it doesn't necessarily work like that. You know, that you have to um, you have to get your books out there. They have to s- start selling enough copies that you make back your advance and then you actually start getting uh, royalty payments off it. And all of that stuff takes time. And yeah, like I say, it wasn't until I really had my YouTube channel take off that I thought, right, I can't do three different jobs simultaneously. I need to quit. Uh, and that's what got me, what we, you know, got me to where I am now. I suppose now the the YouTube channel is called the Critical Drinker, and it's your kind of alter ego. And as as we sit here today, I think you're, you're just shy of one and a half million subscribers. But for anyone yeah. listening who who doesn't know, can you kind of give us a, a precy of what the who the Critical Drinker is and what he does? So he's he's kind of like my alter ego uh, in the sense that he's a, a drunken belligerent Scottish guy who. Um, critiques movies uh, and breaks down the writing of them um, and, and you know has a bit of a laugh doing it and I guess the thing I find enjoyable about it is that contrast of what I hope is pretty um, intelligent criticism and um, and story breakdowns you know versus a, a guy who who makes crude jokes and like laughs and, and talks about you know drinking toilet duck and stuff on a night out um, and it's just, it's a good, fun way of presenting what I do. You know, I think if you're going to get into analysis of media um, and how writing works, it can be a bit dry and a bit boring for some people. And so this is just a way of making it more fun and engaging. And it it makes it more fun for me to do. And so that's kind of how the critical drinker took off. And damn, yeah, once I started doing it, it's, uh, it just really exploded. Yeah, um, the, the writing, Will, is so clever and articulate and laugh out loud funny and i think where whereas you get things which you watch and you go well there's a lot of swearing in it and sometimes you swear but it's so nuanced or perfectly timed that you it re- is so really effective but what i what <laughs> i like about it what i appreciate about it is i think it's very scottish because i think there's loads of sarcasm there's loads of scottish sarcasm in it that's what I tried to bring in. And uh, it's funny because I had no idea whether Americans would even understand what I was saying, never mind get the humor and stuff, but they seem to absolutely love it and great. But yeah, there's, there is something unique about that Scottish sense of humor where we do use sarcasm and we do use swearing to just punctuate our and flavor our language. And I think it's, uh, yeah, a well-placed swear word is just like the seasoning on the, the dish that you prepared for people. So I think it's great to be able to do that. You know, again, just not taking it too seriously, you know, having a bit of fun with it. Uh, I think it, it works really well. And I think that's what makes, I think generally that's a Scottish thing, but you have to be grounded. I watched, I don't know if you've seen it. I watched an interview with Gerard Butler recently and he was talking about his success in going back to Salcoats in Ayrshire and meeting up with his old pals. And they said to him, Jerry, I want you to know that despite all this fame, you've not changed a bit. You're still a dick. Yeah, <laughs> and I thought that's exactly you know that's exactly what they would say to you when you went home as a multi-millionaire to your hometown in Scotland. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, and I think there's that difference, I guess, because you know you make it in places like America, and you're you're almost like elevated to a different level of of being almost. Uh, whereas over here, yeah, you're you're just you're still that same guy that that people have known their whole lives, um, and yeah, like it's not changed how. I get on with my friends or family or anything like that, you know, it's uh, so that's good. It keeps me grounded, I suppose. Yeah. What I like about watching, apart from just, just enjoying your interviews, uh, what I like about watching the Americans, the American people interview is that they are so in awe 
of your bluntness. And I find it odd because Americans are this kind of odd, can they, they can be a slightly insular nation. They've got guns and violence and pornography, and yet they're blown away by your directness. It's a strange one. Yeah, it's a strange contradiction. Um, I've always noticed in America that they're unusually formal with their politeness, which is kind of not what you'd expect. But, you know, something as simple as like um, someone holds a door open for you and you say thanks. Like that would be it for us. But like then they usually say, oh, you're welcome. On top of that, it's just like an extra layer of formality that you just wouldn't expect. And so, yeah, yeah man, I don't know. They, they um, have they a nice day. And how much would you like to tip? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Google. I mean, I maybe it's I'm not a mean Scotsman. I don't want to start that stereotype. But I remember buying a cup of coffee in New York from a kind of independent Starbucks alike type place. And you know, you pay on the iPad. And at the end of it, it was like there was a screen that says, How much would you like to tip? 25%, 35%. I thought, whoa, I've I've not had any real service here. I've just ordered the takeaway coffee. It's crazy. It, it's kind of like that, you know, someone <laughs> I've been at bars and stuff in America and literally all they've done is like open the lid on a on a bottle of beer for me and it's like you're kind of meant to tip them and I just think yeah I, I would tip waiting staff in a restaurant obviously because they have to put in the work but like somebody's just opened a beer for me I was like oh, this is a bit much but you know again it's the culture and like they don't make much money they have to have tips just to get by so yeah you, you, I guess that's what you have to do you know it's just what yeah. you expected Scott's Care Helping to break the cycle of deprivation for Scots in London. Do you do you ever self-censor what you say in your YouTube channel? Do you ever think, ah, I've gone too far and then recut it or rewrite it? Occasionally, um, YouTube is, is getting a little bit more tight with things. Um, you know, one of the ones that was best known... <laughs> Because during the pandemic, you really couldn't talk about coronavirus. And like the moment you said that words, um, there was a danger that your channel was going to get or your, your, at least your video would get demonetized or it would get, um, you know, deranked or something. So people wouldn't see it as much. And that's where I came up with the the, the unspecified virus of unknown origin. And just it became like a pun. But then people like really took to it. And they're like, yeah, it's quite funny. This They knew exactly why I was doing that. And so, yeah, those are examples. and. You know, there's certain subjects that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into. Like, I, I'm not gonna go into politics or anything like that with my channel. And I think people appreciate that because you know, there's enough people spouting off their political beliefs online. They don't need me adding to the mix. So, yeah, I just try to focus on the entertainment side of things. Yeah, we are. So, you know, I, then I appreciate that. It's, you know, it's a kind of moment of levity in a world gone mad. Watching your stuff, and you know, we're surrounded by culture wars and online noise and. Is that something you worry about for your kids? Do you try and monitor the screen time? And, and you know, I, I check my son Noah's phone. And <coughs> sometimes I feel as if it's an invasion of his privacy. And, but other times I, I want to know what he's looking at. You know? Yeah, it, it's, it is a tricky one. And, you know, with, with my youngest, like he's um, less interested in like pop culture and stuff. So I don't really have to worry about him. He's just looking for like, you know, videos of, of uh, spaceships or like, cars or whatever you know he just he's onto that but uh with my older son i suppose he's of that age where he's starting to become more aware of these things and um yeah you kind of just want you hope that they get a balanced view of things because i don't i don't really want them to be swayed too far in either direction like they want to see arguments from both sides of things and uh, you know ultimately make up their own mind um, and just be rational and level-headed um 
but yeah, like yeah. we don't we don't let him have any kind of social media as such because we've you know we're all too aware of like you, you might say something online just try to be edgy or whatever as as a teenager and you know 10 years down the line that that tweet gets uncovered or whatever it might be and like suddenly you're losing your job and like that happens to people now and um yeah it's it's a whole different world they're growing up in from what we came up in as kids well this yeah. this is it i think if i had to be held <clears throat> to account for what i said when i was 25 i would probably never work again in my life yeah and, you know you, you i think it's i read that, that there was a story about the cricketer and he was said to i can't remember whether it was a racist remark or a homophobic remark or something but it was something stupid mm. and ultimately forgivable probably and it kind of ruined his life for a while yeah um, you know, they, they talk, I guess, sometimes about the online hate mobs and stuff, like when they, they cotton on to someone like that, like some kind of public figure who said something a little bit edgy or a little bit inappropriate in his younger days. And like they will just not stop until that person gets fired. Uh, yeah. And it, like you say, it's got the potential to ruin lives. And it's, yeah, it's kind of a scary world, really, that you're. Yeah, it does. Well, let's, let's talk about movies and TV. The last the thing, you know, I've. It's, it's lovely to have you here because there's things I wanted to talk to you about and ask you about and see what you thought. And the last thing that I watched and loved was Succession because every character was brilliantly despicable and <laughs> and made all that much better for me because you know there's people like that that actually exist. Did you like Succession? I haven't seen Succession, unfortunately. So, yeah, this is as one of the problems of being like a movie critic and stuff is that um you know people are constantly asking you well, what did you think about this movie what do you think about this tv show and yeah sometimes you're like i've never even watched it <laughs> you know and it's it's always uh, it's always unfortunate but like there's only so many hours in the day yeah. um for people like me to try and watch new content so that we can review it and yeah you sometimes have to be picky and the sad reality is sometimes movies or shows get left behind um, i think that's probably one of them i heard that it's meant to be really good though it's, it's great. And I don't think Brian Cox was really on my radar. I, I always knew he played, you know, he was in the Bourne series and he, he played the original Hannibal Lecter. Yes. But I don't think he was really on my radar un, until this. And I actually went out and bought his autobiography because of Succession. And he's certainly no diplomat. And I, can't, I couldn't decide if it was that he had a massive ego or that he's just got to the point in life when he doesn't give a monkey's. It could be either one, yeah. Um, I mean, he's got a bit of a, a reputation for playing villains. I've seen him do that in a lot of movies. And he plays them pretty well, yeah. He's a Dundonian, isn't he? In, yeah, originally. yeah. Aye. Well, we can um, forgive him that. <clears throat> yeah, that's all right. But, uh, you know, we've all got our, our disabilities in life. But, you know, he's he's a good actor. And, uh, yeah, I've enjoyed him in a lot of things that he's been in. Um, yeah. Talking about villains, you know, um, and and heroes, one of... One of the videos you made that kind of stuck in my mind was the, the video you made about heroes, because I think we all need heroes. And mm -hmm. when I was a kid, it was quite clear who and why the heroes were heroes. And I think for kids, it is quite simple. You know, they save the world, they fly, they're, they're, they're Spider-Man, they have superpowers. And it's it's been kind of destroyed. And I think you put your finger on it, it's kind of been homogenized and wokeified and, and destroyed. And I, I just it's become awfully complicated just to be a hero it's yeah this is the one of the most horrible aspects of entertainment for me today is the deconstruction of the traditional hero um where you've got these these characters that we used to i guess look up to and thought were awesome as kids and you know instead of just bringing in a new generation of heroes and letting them retire gracefully it's like they can't do it they have to first humiliate them and break them down and try to 
imply that you know they were never that never that great to begin with you know you need to you need to enjoy our new heroes that are going to replace them and it's a really crappy thing to do as a writer it's really cheap and it's really manipulative and it absolutely boils my blood when it happens like i think we all suffered through films like the last jedi where we saw like luke skywalker now just this sad pathetic old man um you know the what other ones that we've had um they're going to be doing it to indiana jones pretty sure pretty soon um as far as i know they're even doing it within say the the marvel movies the the heroes that we had 10 years ago which you know the actors have kind of retired from their roles and they've got a new bunch coming in uh now you're starting to see that that same breaking down of those those characters you know they're not uh they they were more complex you know that uh everyone's conflicted now everything's nihilistic no one can really just aspire to to being a hero and doing good things because they want to it all has to be like um you know this this weird um conflicted world now uh and i I don't think it's a great thing for people you know it's not that every character has to be black and white and strictly good or strictly evil but there needs to be something at least for people to aspire to uh, yeah. and you're just not getting it anymore well i just i you know on a very simple level i for me it doesn't have to be that complicated you know i i want to talk to you about villains in a second but you know when you, you talked about luke skywalker i was i was listening to a podcast with mark hamill and he said even he was aware when the last jedi script was sent to him he didn't think this is the direction that luke skywalker would have gone in mm-hmm. but obviously went with it um but yeah, for him to become an embittered old man hiding was not the way of the, and I don't want to get into a Star Wars conversation, but it's not the way of the Jedi. He would have fought to the end. No, and I, exactly, yeah. And I think it was just this this really cynical effort to make him weak so that it could make their new character look strong. And, you know, if that's what you're having to rely on to make your new character look good, then you are a terrible writer. And, yeah. you know, that's that's what you see so much nowadays. They hire basically people who are useless incompetent hacks who, who don't know how to tell a good story and craft good characters but they get the job because i guess they say the right things or they have the right political alignment or whatever it is uh and they're now entrusted with these great characters from previous generations of writers and they absolutely butcher them going on to villains like i always kind of look when i was growing up i kind of liked villains you know but my son rafe he always wants to be the villain he wants to be he wants to be the dark side when the boys play Star Wars. It's not because he's a bad kid, but sometimes villains are just a bit more interesting. And they're more fun, aren't they? Because you don't have to worry about like you know appealing to the right sensibilities with a villain. You don't have to worry about making them virtuous. They could they allow everyone to like I guess indulge their inner dark side <laughs> just a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Um, but I don't the think best- they have to see the error of their ways, and I think that's that's the way it's changing. That they have to be kind of reborn in some way now which is just boring i think what you get now is this weird attempt to to redefine them as as anti-heroes like again it plays into this sort of nihilistic view that there is no inherent good or evil or or whatever and that uh you know every character is just a a gray sort of blob you know like the boy one of the worst ones i've seen was when they had that cruella movie like last year i think it was um, and they're trying to recast Cruella Deville as like some cool, uh, punky anti-hero character. Um, it, it's it's a woman who wanted to murder puppies and turn them into coats. 
from the you know the original 101 Dalmatians yeah. you don't, you're not going to reform a character like that I'm sorry that's not that's just an out and out bad person you know but they're still trying to do this and I don't understand why do you, do you think we'll come out of it do you think there's there's we're in this kind of loop and we'll find an equilibrium I read I read an article in the Guardian the other day saying that the word gardening should be retired because it, it wasn't politically correct anymore. And I just, yeah, I honestly think there'll come a tipping point for most people because I think everyone's got like a certain degree of tolerance for this stuff. You know, we all do. And it's like, you let start, you let little things slide because it's like, well, you know, it's, it's times are changing and certain things are, are not acceptable now. But I think when you get to that kind of level, yeah, where it's like, gardening is racist now or, or timekeeping is racist or math is racist or this is sexist or this is homophobic uh that there comes a point where normal people just say oh cough you know like i've had enough of this garbage i i'm not going to listen to this anymore and it's like gone to the realms of parody now um and when it comes to like working that you know i always hate using the word woke in movies because it's just it's overused just like being like sexism and racism is overused so is that but yeah, that trend in Hollywood, I think, is coming to an end now because the more they try and do it in movies, the more it pushes audiences away. And it was small at first, but it's happening more and more. And, you know, we had a movie like Top Gun Maverick, which shouldn't have succeeded by any standard of measure, like a sequel to a film from 35 years ago, starring Tom Cruise, who's pushing 60. And yet, People loved it because it yeah. didn't have any of that crap in it. It was just a good old-fashioned story of a an aging hero coming back for one last mission, one last adventure. And it just, it did crazy business. It's like $1.4 billion that's made worldwide. It's like Tom Cruise's biggest movie of all time. Uh, I've not seen it yet. This is one that I want to go and see. I keep Go see it because honestly, you'll love it. It's like one of the few movies that I genuinely came out of the cinema just feeling great. I was like, I've just had a lot of fun there. It's been a great film. It wasn't trying to push any stupid message in. It wasn't trying to tell us that Maverick was bad because he's a straight white man or any of that stupid nonsense that divides people. Uh, it was just a good movie. And wow, I think it, it really sent shockwaves through the industry. I honestly think they did not expect it to do anywhere near that kind of business. And it's maybe making them rethink a little bit what they're doing um i know that uh, studios like warner brothers are absolutely gutting their projects and their staff because they don't have the money to keep pushing these these projects that they know are going to fail mm. um the the biggest example and I, I feel bad for the people involved in this but they had a batgirl movie coming out uh, yeah was that, was, that was shot in glasgow that was shot uh, yes yeah um i i went over to the set to visit the directors and um, you know the super nice guys like they were just really enthusiastic to be making this film it was like one of their first big movies after doing bad boys three and uh they, they'd done it it was in the can um, they were in post-production and all of a sudden they just find out through news outlets no less that the film has been canned uh it's not coming out and it's going to be deleted basically and they even went into the servers on warner brothers and all of their footage they'd shot had been removed so they couldn't even rescue it that way. Um, what kind of figure do you put on that? Well, what, how much money would that have wasted? That movie cost $90 million to make. Wow. Which, Nine you know, zero, $90 million. $90 million, which compared to a lot of movies nowadays, it's not that expensive, but $90 million is still $90 million. But the, the reason for cancelling it was if they'd released it, they would have had to spend another $100 million advertising it. And the studio had decided... 
basically because it was filled with a lot of the kind of um, intersectional stuff, like the the main character, Bat Girl, had been recast as a as a um, a black woman or black actress they'd found to play her. They knew it wasn't going to play well, um, and so they decided to cut their losses. Um, and so it was easier to flush ninety million down the drain than two hundred million, I suppose. Scots Care, supporting Scots away from home in London. Well, let me ask you about um, something that I've kind of thought about a lot about films that are kind of seen as problematic now that probably weren't seen as problematic in the eighties or in the nineties. A film that I grew up was was the the Breakfast Club. And I hear a lot about that. You know, I, I Googled it the other day because I, I wanted to talk to you about it. And there's a lot of talk of cancelling it completely. And I get why people want it cancelled, because there's sexual harassment in it, there's bullying in it. But my worry is that, you know, you can't delete the footage of the Brexit Club. Surely you can't throw the baby out with the bad bathwater. There is there is something there that makes that an iconic film, even I though think- we can't we can't tolerate the, the bad parts of it. But surely we can't get rid of something like that. I think you you judge movies by the standards of their time. And, you know, where do you stop with this stuff? And, you know, I'm trying to think of other examples throughout history where where, um, society started destroying art and destroying books and things like that. (laughs) You know, it didn't end well. And I just hate this idea of, you know, this thing to pick stuff that we don't like or that's not considered acceptable now, therefore it has to cease to exist. Um, You don't really have the right to do that. Um, it's the same with with old movies like Gone with the Wind. Obviously, that depicts um, you know the the South and the the kind yeah. of um, slavery and stuff. Um, it, it probably depicts these black characters in a not particularly good light by today's standards. But it's a, a piece of art that was made in a very different time, and I think most people would be sensible enough to to recognize, yeah, you know this this isn't how we live now, but this is what was made in the movie. This is how it was depicted. Um, and you should just appreciate it for what it is. Um, and yeah, it's it's really, most of this stuff comes down to a very small minority of people who make it their business to be offended by everything um, mm. and can't stand the idea that, that people can enjoy stuff that they don't like. And so their solution is it just has to be destroyed. It has to go. Um, you know, you don't have the same opinion as me. Well, you have to be canceled somehow. I'll find something on you um, to get you canceled. Uh, and silence you this is the mentality and it's a really dangerous one and i hope that that is something that that gets consigned to the trash can of history soon enough this is what i hope we come out the other side of and start to see sense and start to have a balance in some way yeah yeah listen can i before we wrap it up can i ask you just a couple of i since you're a a film expert and there's something a couple of light questions i want to ask you because the stuff that just baffles me Sure. Liam Neeson, do you think he knows he just makes the same movie over and over <laughs> and over again? Absolutely. Look, he's he's been around long enough, you know. Uh, same with The Rock, you know, Dwayne Johnson. He just made just himself in every single movie. Uh, but it makes a ton of money. And so that's why they do it. We were sitting looking for something, my wife Becky and I on Netflix, and there was another Liam Neeson movie, and she said to me, What's that about? And I says, well, probably somebody's been kidnapped and he's either an ex-spy or ex-mafia or something and he has to go and rescue someone. It's just, yeah, he must forget it, what he's doing. I, I don't know if there's well, there's a little bit of like midlife crisis to it. Although I, I say midlife, he's pretty old now. But he, Liam Neeson was like this weird late bloomer as an action star. It 
it's like he did take it when he was i don't know pushing 50 yeah uh and it just re- he was reborn as some weird like over the hill action star that just started doing all these crazy um you know these crazy fight scenes and things um yeah taken yeah. i thought that's that was kind of like the the template for everything that has been a liam neeson movie since isn't it basically yeah yeah, yeah. And then but like my, i say my... you know you get to that stage uh, maybe you just want an easy payday <laughs> Yes. Well, what, why not? Yeah. And then my final one would be Bruce Willis. What happened to Bruce Willis? Because I love oh. Die Hard, one of the best movies of all time. And we watched something recently and it was, it was like he wasn't even in the same movie. It was like the cut in Bruce Willis scenes. It was like he dialed it in. That uh, I think that's exactly what happened. Because obviously we know now that he's got this kind of degenerative condition where he, you know, he, he struggles to, well, process things and remember lines, um, you know all that stuff so he's retired from acting now and you know those it was obviously fun to meme on him for the last few years of his career because it genuinely just seemed like he did not give a shit um he was just there to collect his paycheck um probably appear in the film for about 10 minutes just yeah. so they could slap his face on the, the cover and say that you know it's a bruce willis movie when it's not um and yeah we know now like he was having to perform in a limited capacity because he just couldn't do more than that which, you know, it's a real shame, um, but there it was. But, you know, he'd been going down that road for quite some time, just doing lazy, you know, small performances in low-budget action movies just to to make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, I suppose as he gets older, these guys are harder to cast because, you know, he isn't John McClane anymore, which is, I love, apart from the last one, I think, yeah. There was one really terrible diehard, wasn't there? But the rest of them there's, were great. I love there's them. been a few, yeah. <laughs> Basically, the first three were great. You know, I, I know people take a dump on two sometimes, but I think Die Hard 2 was a really good action movie. Um, yeah, Die Hard 4 was uh, a bit weird and he didn't really feel like John McClane anymore. And then when he did that final one, where it's in Russia or something, it was just like a cartoon, really. Yeah, I don't think I got Bizarre. to the end of that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much, Will Jordan, for being part of the Scottscare podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. Scottscare. Supporting London Scots with financial grants, welfare advice, counselling, sheltered housing, jobs coaching and family support. 